Hey guys, welcome to another installment of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. I'm Richie, your co-host, and today I'm joined by Alex. Hi. And Aaron. Hey. And together we're directing the focus back on you, the listener, especially those of you who are still in undergrad, on an episode we like to call Undergrad's Ass. Huh? I think as grad students we spend a lot of time thinking about our academic paths, and especially in the Institute of Medical Science, our department, which is a massive department, we get to interact with students who have vastly different experiences from ours. So they're in different fields. Uh, they're probably in different labs that have different supervisory styles, uh, labs of different sizes. They use different methods. Some are more bench research oriented, some are computational, some are entirely clinical. So they have different growth experiences and different skills that they gain along the way. And we also get a lot of questions from undergrads about these experiences. So as grad students, we kind of get to be mentors to undergrads. And uh, a lot of questions that we get are sort of oriented about what is it like to be a grad student? I think this episode is an opportunity for us to reflect on those questions and hopefully provide some insights to new grad students and to prospective students who are still in undergrad. And what better way to answer a lot of different questions at random by playing our favorite game, Cat Chats. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to go across the table and we've got a little grab bag full of fun questions that we've drafted beforehand. And each each of us has a random question that, that we've been posed. And we're going to open up those questions and we're going to see what it's about. So here we go. So I think the first question that we'll ask before we even get started is why did you decide to pursue grad school? And has it paid off? Would you do it again? My answer is similar to what a lot of other people say. So I started with an undergrad science background. I did human biology for four years. And the classroom experience was really rich because I got to meet a lot of different scientists in different courses. And you sort of get a crash course on different types of science, um, physiology, microbiology, genetics, um, more molecular stuff, immunology. But you don't really get to know how science happens. And so one of my, I guess my two biggest drivers for entering grad school were that I wanted to learn how science was actually conducted. So where science came from, was it from the lab or was it from the the clinic? And how are a lot of these methods that we learn about in undergrad, how are they actually used to run experiments? And what is the scientific method about? So I think I wanted a more hands-on experience. The other reason was I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do after. And I knew that I didn't want to jump into the work market immediately and I just kind of wanted to see what was out there as far as science careers but again I also really wanted a hands-on experience and as far as whether or not it's paid off I would definitely say it has paid off I I certainly would do it again but I do wish I had some some mentors or or some senior students along the way to kind of tell me oh do this and and don't do this but by and large I feel like grad school has been a really great way for me to pick up a lot of different skills both within the lab so running experiments thinking critically, a lot of writing and presenting, I think, goes into grad school when you you go and do talks and you present posters at conferences and you get to network and you get to meet scientists on an international scale. So yeah, I I would definitely do it again. Yeah, that's good. I would would say about the same thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. So who who wants to field the next question? What do we what do we got here? Um, Aaron, how about you? Why don't you open up one of our secret questions? (laughs) Okay. How do you choose a supervisor in a research project? Oh, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also kind of entering into the program, I think they're really important questions and certainly something that I had a lot of concern about. Um, I just started in September um, and so that was certainly something that I was thinking a lot about. So how do you choose a supervisor? So I think the main thing to think about would be sort of which field you want to pursue first and which field you're sort of interested in. And then from there you can 
look into the different researchers and the different scientists within that field and do a little bit of research on them and see if your research interests are compatible with theirs um, and if anything sort of speaks to you. And then from there, start reaching out to them and sending a lot of emails. And then I think hopefully you'll get a few interviews and then you'll meet one-on-one and see if, if anyone really interests you. And I just wanted to add to that. I wanted to say that the thing that I tell a lot of students is that grades go a really long way if you want to do professional school, right? Your GPA is very important. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're doing, like, say, a job interview, people want to know how well you did in your courses. And although that is definitely true in undergrad, supervisors, prospective supervisors will want to see your grades. I feel like interest and just passion in what the person's doing also goes a long way. So start off by having read their papers and then say, oh, I noticed you published a study on this. This is something I'm really interested in. And can we talk more about this? Definitely personalize the emails because supervisors get so many emails from a lot of different students. So in order to sort of stand out, I would say definitely read up on them and um, and, and like Richie said, read some of their articles mm-hmm. um, because I think that'll definitely go a long way. Just just one more little comment too. Um, I'd also recommend to, to undergraduate students or people who are thinking of applying to grad school not to be afraid to send out many emails. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no harm in meeting these supervisors. And, you know, you, you, I think something that I was a bit afraid about initially was that when I sent out emails, I was always afraid that I'd be walking into a formal interview and that, you know, therefore that this maybe would be the supervisor mm-hmm. and um, that maybe by meeting with them, they would assume that, that I was going to be their student. But it's just really a conversation and they might actually refer you to someone else. That's actually what happened to me. I met up with someone initially and then they referred to me to my current supervisor. So just really see them as interesting conversations you can have with uh, researchers who may or may not end up being your, your supervisor and yeah. uh, take it from there. Little do we know, a lot of scientists are very chill, kind of casual people. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. like coffee stains everywhere. In no, the absolutely, <laughs> yeah. We'll offer you a cookie. <laughs> uh, so what do, what do we got next as far as questions? Okay, next. I guess I'll go next. What happens if your project does not work out? Oof, <laughs> big question. <laughs> Um, Has that happened to you guys? Has a project not worked out, not materialized the way you wanted it to? In graduate school? Yeah. Um, I think uh, sort of along the way, smaller things have not worked out. Um, Of course, we'll see whether the big project doesn't work out. That is a possibility. And I think it's normal to to get upset or feel frustrated when things don't work out in the way that you hope them to, especially if maybe at the end of your master's degree, you sort of hope to find something of significance. And if that doesn't um, come through, you might feel disappointed. And you're allowed to feel that way, but it's good to keep in mind that, especially I think at the master's level, but also at the PhD, you're honing certain skills, you're learning to, you're learning the scientific method, really. So it's great if you can find significant results, but um, it's still a wonderful experience. And also, non-significant results are still results, and they are very important as well. We know that in you know the scientific community, there's a bias towards significance, so it's also good to keep all of that in mind. And yeah, don't let yourself get discouraged too. Just keep at it. I always think if you talk to your supervisor and you have the kind of lab where they have a lot of different ideas that they're throwing around, you can always try to have a contingency plan and kind of say, oh, these are my expectations. Let's say I maybe want to finish in two years or something like that, or even just give them updates. I think regularly communicating with your supervisor and just letting him or her know where you're at 
And if something's not working, maybe they can give you their ideas or mm -hmm. maybe say, okay, well, if this really doesn't work out and you feel like you're kind of at a dead end, maybe we could explore this instead. Absolutely. Definitely That's having good. an open discourse. And, and if you do have resources as far as other postdocs or other students who mm -hmm. are maybe kind of senior to you mm -hmm. um, to show you the ropes and say, oh, yeah, this didn't work out or try this method or something like that, they can probably steer you in the right direction as well. So, yeah, definitely don't be afraid to ask. Yeah, don't, don't keep things to yourself. Ask and re reach out for help. So I guess I'm up next, and uh, it's a very interesting and kind of scary question that uh, I'm not ready to answer for myself. What career opportunities exist after a master's or PhD in medical science? So I think that's a very relevant question because we talked to Dr. Reinhard Reichmeier. He's got the 10,000 PhDs project, and what he's found is that the U of T, University of Toronto graduates about 1,000 PhDs a year, something like mm -hmm. that. And only about 15% of them end up in academia. And this is supposed to be a really staggering, kind of shocking number because <laughs> U of T is a research powerhouse. And presumably a lot of people that do great research then go on to become academics, do their postdocs, and then uh, maybe become supervisors and have labs or research groups of their own. But that's not happening. So where are they going? I mean, I, I can specifically answer that if you've got a PhD, there kind of is no specific career path if you don't want to go into academia. I think the PhD was always this kind of academic stepping stone, right, toward getting your own lab, becoming your own prof um, and teaching. But the nice thing about the PhD is that, again, going back to my Swiss Army knife analogy, you get all these different skills when you do a PhD. Um, you get to teach and speak and present and communicate. So hopefully you've spent the last couple of years trying to present yourself, market yourself, and sort of learn what you're about and what you're interested in. And what's cool is the PhD can be combined with, say, another degree, like, say, an MBA, and then maybe you can go into business or consulting. It can also be combined with, say, a professional degree, like a law degree, and then you can maybe do IP law or something like that. So it's, it's really... It's a toolkit that sort of says to an employer or maybe to a professional school that you know how to think critically and you know how to plan and you kind of have a lot of different skills at your disposal and you're able to deploy them, right? And you're able to solve problems. And so as far as a specific career, there kind of isn't one outside of academia, but it is a choose your own adventure. I think we've heard that some PhD students go on and they maybe do medical school, some do uh, law school, some do an MBA. I know just from doing, uh, when we're doing tech support, and we're trying to get our sequencer fixed because it's on the fritz, we'll call Illumina, which is over in San Diego, and there's a lot of cool scientists that work in biotech, and they actually do a lot of the R&D, or they might do customer support. They're all PhD grads, right, and they didn't go into academia, and they have a deep understanding of the science uh, from their own perspective, from their own project, that they've now applied to a very specific niche, whether it's developing an enzyme at this company or maybe consulting for this other company. So the nice thing is the world is sort of your oyster. It's just not uh, it's not a very straightforward path. So I can say that, uh, that that's kind of the vantage point that one has leaving their PhD degree. I feel like for a master's it's similar, but kind of on a more limited scale. And I think the advantage of the master's is it's a lot shorter. So usually a master's research base is kind of two years and not, you know, five to seven years like a PhD is. And so you have a lot more time to kind of think about how you want to combine that master's. And it's sort of like little taste of science. Like, have you guys sort of found that you sort of get a bite-sized mm -hmm. taste okay. of how to do science? So it's sort of a mini PhD in a sense. And, you know, if you definitely know that you don't want to do academia, you could always do a master's and just sort of get a peek into how science is done. And then maybe think about using that as kind of a stepping stone to 
build your career further, again, through professional school, or maybe you would go to work at, at a company that does science in some capacity, um, or even law, or sorry, not law, even uh, working in government, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of government jobs that require scientific know-how. And I think they they look at both master's and, and PhD grads. Mm-hmm. One of our episodes with Dr. Darlene Homanko, she was telling us about the importance of the informational interview, where you, let's say you meet someone at a talk at like a networking event, you just kind of get their card or their LinkedIn or something like that. And you just say, hey, can I just take you up for coffee? Just buy you a coffee, buy an hour of your time and just sort of figure out what you do. If you are in a master's program and you're not sure what you want to do, instead of looking for a specific career, I feel like it's super important to start networking and just meeting a lot of different types of people and just kind of figuring out what you want to do. Because if you went into the master's and it's not a professional master's, so it doesn't lend itself to a specific career, you're probably still kind of shopping around. You're still looking around and you're not looking to just settle on one job. You're kind of looking to explore and, and see what else is out there. So yeah, it's a very roundabout way of saying you can kind of do anything as mm-hmm. long as you sort of put the time in. And I think you said something really key. It's the informational interviews. I'm a huge fan of inter- informational <laughs> interviews. Have you done one lately? I feel like you were telling me about yes. one the other day. It's, it's like uh, academic or professional speed dating. You know, you meet up with someone and you're like, what, like, you know, who are you? What are you all about? <laughs> swipe right coffee. on this job. I know. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a great way to learn about what is out there. I think this is something that's specifically a bit of a problem in the sort of medical science community where we know we have doctors, we know we have nurses. And then beyond that, it's a bit of a, and then we have researchers. And then beyond that, it's a bit of a question mark. Obviously, there's way more. There's many different types of jobs. And so the best way to find out is to just talk shop to people, around. Shop, shop around and around. ask people. And uh, I've gotten to a point now where I no longer have to research much myself. I'll just meet up with someone and they'll refer me to someone else and they refer me to <laughs> someone else based on what my interests are. And it's also a great way to yeah, network, as you said, but also maybe eventually one day maybe land a job too. And I think at no matter what uh, level of your education, you should feel free and open to do that, even as an undergrad, to reach out to people. People are friendly, and people also love talking about themselves. Totally. <laughs> and people love to help. They do. They do. And if they can't help you, they'll still outright say it in their email. But most people will agree to meet, meet with you for a coffee. So Most definitely. So I think we're going to take a little bit of a break, and we'll be back with more Undergrads Ask in just a moment. everyone, this is Melissa, and today on our segment, Mentors Corner, we have Dr. Vasunandara Venkateswaran, who is a graduate coordinator with the IMS, and we're really excited to have her. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Melissa. Pleasure. So I know that you're director of the Summer Undergraduate Research Program, but let's talk a bit about mm-hmm. your role as graduate coordinator specifically. <clears throat> um, so what is your sort of day-to-day like around this time, at least uh, as graduate coordinator? So it's interesting because during waste times in the year, we have different kinds of priorities. Not priorities in the sense like students are a priority. But this is a time because of the early admissions. So a couple of years back, like I said, when I took over as graduate admissions, uh, chair of graduate admissions, we we did um, introduce a few things, which means we had a second deadline for applications. Initially, we had one deadline in May. Then we realized a lot of students who who are probably potentially looking at medical school and haven't had the opportunity come to us. So we extended our deadline and put it as a, a June deadline. Also, there are students who have finished programs who are waiting to get in. Um, and, and they needed, they, they shouldn't have to wait. So we introduced an early deadline. And early deadline is now February. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
instead of applications being coming in later towards the year, we started getting applications more towards the February, March, because, you know, students want to make sure that they have something, a backup plan. If they haven't got into this, they're, they're sure that they get into a graduate program and so on. So because of this, at this point of time, we have a huge crunch for admissions. So which means the focus of graduate coordinators and, and myself is getting the interviews because we don't want to keep students waiting. They're anxious when they put in the application, they want to know what's happening. Mm -hmm. So this time of the year, it's crunch for admissions, which means interviews, um, admissions committee meetings, and so on and so forth. That's now. But typically that doesn't mean that we don't care for our students, right? So we want to make sure our present students are also taken care of. Students who got into medical school potentially might get in. They come to us with timelines of finishing. So we want to make sure that they are able to finish up their thesis, move forward, get into medical school, because you know some of the schools require that you should have grad graduated or convocated. Mm -hmm. There are other things that come up. Students who started uh, in the, a program a year and a half back are ready to transition into a PhD like yourself. And, and what happens at that time is that we want to make sure that we guide them appropriately. We want to um, we conduct workshops for these students. We tell them um, what is it that is required if they want to complete a program, uh, how do you write a thesis, and so on and so forth. There are other things. Now, students have their own little, you know, concerns and issues they come up with, and, and whatever we talk here in, in this room, um, it it's always stays confidential. It stays with the graduate coordinators, and we discuss if students have any concerns. Concerns means with supervisors, their projects are not going well. Uh, how do I do this? How do I get this publication out? Do I have the right to be a first author on a publication? Students come with a lot of uh, questions for us. Um, you might wonder, a lot of things get answered during the 10, 10 and other classes, but there are things that students don't like to ask in public. They would like to come and talk to you in person. And, and we talk to them about that. Um, students who are unable to do well in PAC meetings and and one of the things that graduate coordinators have been doing is um, we, we look at all of the PAC forms, and if students haven't done well in a PAC, the first PAC meeting is always a bit of a concern. I mean, not a bit of a big concern because you know, they're the first time they're doing it. But if, subsequently, if we see that, you know, it's flagged, then we, we call them in. You know, we, we don't stress them out. We just call them and say, do you want to come and, you know, have a chat with the graduate coordinators? And we ask them, what's happening? Like, you know, is your project not going well? And, and there's a lot of mentoring. It's not hand-holding. Mm -hmm. We are not uh, trying to micromanage things here. But what we're trying to do is we want to make sure we help the students out. If probably they are uh, inhibited to come and talk to us. So we actually call them in and ask them about their uh, committee. And, and that's one thing I really love. I love meeting with the graduate students because they come and talk to you. And one of the interesting things I found is that when you interview, and this is a big part of our admissions, right, and is interviewing the students. So we're unique in that way. So when we interview the students, the students come back to us. Oh, I interviewed with so-and-so. Hazel, can you book an appointment so we can I can go and meet with her or whoever's in? It's a comfort zone that yeah. they have, right? So, um, so that's there. And... Um, a lot of times conflict resolution, they might have a little argument with their co-work, like a, a colleague of theirs, um, another graduate student, they're worried, has a project been demarcated for me? How do I really address this? They're concerned. So we talk to them about it. Um, in terms of writing, sometimes students don't like to ask questions at the workshops. They come to us, they bring us the table of contents and say, do you think this is sufficient? No, 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 that goes back to your committee. But I can give you sort of a structure to say, 
okay, if, if you really need uh, advice into how you want to structure your thesis, yeah, sure, we can help you out of that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of things. So we have, wear a lot of hats. I know you're almost a psychologist to a certain extent. We, we, we do, we do. And if students need help with counseling and stuff, we do refer them. There are student services and we, we direct them. I think it's more, um, students need to feel that we are here for them. Mm-hmm. That's very important. Not just say, oh, graduate coordinator is here because you know, they're here to sign some papers and approve a thesis. No, we are here to guide them, mentor them, uh, help them out and, and see how best we can channelize their problems or um, direct them properly. So that, that, that's a big role here. Yeah. And apart from that, you know, we, we do a lot of other things. We, we look into awards for students and we have the curriculum that is headed by Dr. Mount. A lot. <laughs> yeah, I can't even believe you have enough time to work at Sunnybrook. Do you, it, it, it's there. My, my work is going great. I've graduated yeah. my, my yeah. PhD student yeah. and my master's student just finished. I have Euro-Oncology yeah. fellows in the lab. So it's a good mix for yeah. me. I, yeah, I enjoy that great. too. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so more specifically about the application <laughs> process and admissions mm-hmm. process, uh, what uh, does it involve for maybe a, a master's student entry versus a direct entry PhD or... A PhD with a master's degree. So if somebody is looking at a master's program, they need to have completed an undergraduate degree. And we have our requirements that they should have secured at least um, an A- minus in three out of four years, and definitely in the last year and with an overall GPA. But we won't go into the little details. So let me give you a bigger picture of what it is that students are really looking at. So um, that's one aspect of it, completing and getting your grades. But what's the other bigger aspects or the other aspects of it is how much of research have you been exposed to mm-hmm. remember this is not a course-based master's this is a research-based uh, thesis-based master's so you're looking at completing a sumptuous amount of work wherein you can be at least it's equivalent to at least one first author publication in a master's mm-hmm. and when it comes to a phd at least three first three first author publications or uh, the work should be sufficient enough to merit that right so when students are coming in for a master's, you're looking at the grades. You're also looking at how much of research exposure they have had. Um, a lot of students do research during their undergraduate years, like when they're in their, um, for the summers. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's, it's sometimes hard for them to find uh, positions. Sure. But that's what, and we'll talk about that a little bit about my summer Mm-hmm. Um, undergraduate uh, program that I run. So students get involved a bit in summer research. They may not actually do substantial amount of work to get a, a publication, but they've been exposed to research. Uh, they get a taste for research. And then you have students who are involved in fourth-year projects. So what is it that we're looking at? We want to make sure that students have been exposed to research. That's important. Mm-hmm. If they're applying for a master's, they, they, we're not looking that they have publications. It's great if you have a publication, but a lot of students do have abstracts that they put up, they're presented at the research, uh, as a, a little conference, or they're part of another bigger study and so on. The third aspect is the letters of reference because, and that's why we say if you're applying to a graduate program, make sure that you get a good mix of references. You're getting references from um, uh, faculty who taught courses, you're looking at getting references from somebody who supervised you for a fourth-year project. And these are faculty, not postdoctoral fellows and your students mm-hmm. who are there. So that is the next aspect. The, the fourth one is the letter of intent that you're putting together. Students are always confused. What do I write in the letter? We I know, give them I noticed, some guidance. Yeah. We give them some guidance. It's sort of free-flowing there because 
we we want the students to talk about what they have done so far mm-hmm. you know what have they uh, uh, accomplished like if they've done research yeah sure they can talk about the research um what is it that they really led them on to coming to what to mm-hmm. a masters program and and a lot of students talk about how they did a summer and they transitioned into a fourth year and 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 they found this work really exciting and that's how they're applying for a masters program with the same person mm-hmm. probably who's supervised them for a fourth year if students are coming in for a phd then we want more structure we want to make sure that you know they have a formulated project not with the research aim and hypothesis but a bigger picture we want to make sure that um uh, they should be in a position to to do a nice to hit run. the ground running hit so to right speak right away yeah now um when students are coming in and and they've done this research we want to make sure that they're able to talk about their work so that's where the interview process mm-hmm. plays a part it's not like they've got they've done some research but if they're not able to discuss it not able to articulate the work that maybe they don't know what it is or they have not been involved right so we hope that when they come in for the interview they can talk more about what they've done um how they were involved with the research and so on and even fill us up on what happened in between you know if you've applied uh you've thrown in your application by the time you complete an interview you have accept a uh, abstract has been accepted mm-hmm. yes come on so that's a fifth component that the interview the interview plays a very integral part because it sort of gives the personalized connection with mm-hmm. the department that's the first line of contact you're seeing a human being other than just having something on paper and and they see the graduate coordinators they're able to talk about um what they've done and also ask us questions you know um how do you think my grades are and and we discuss things a lot we don't there's the decision is not made at the time of the interview it's made at by the admissions committee So the the five components are your grades, your letter of intent, your letter of letters of reference, previous your previous research experience. Your research experience. So the CV forms a big part yeah. too and what experience you've had. But if a student is lacking in grades mm-hmm. for example, they can and they have a lot of research experience, maybe they did a third year and a fourth year project, um that would sort of give them a leg up maybe into the master's. Yeah. Program. So so that's a very common question that students always ask us like you know my grades are not great. So that's for something they 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 we always welcome them to discuss it at the meeting because every application is unique. I won't be able to say exactly, but we don't look at an application and and reject our application or defer it or accept it just based on grades because if we had to do that mm-hmm. then we wouldn't be uh, you know going through the whole interview process for us it's the full application package that we look at mm-hmm. but also when students come to us and the grades are not up to par we advise them appropriately not just us but the admissions committee is there they provide comments and criti- uh, comments on the application and if a student is not accepted into the program they uh, they give proper direction and what happens is and students are welcome to come back to me and i as chair i meet with them or even to the person who interviewed them and say can you give me a bit of feedback into what happened how can i do this better in a lot of uh, situations if students don't have the research exposure we'll tell them you this is not a course based masters this is a thesis based masters so go back get some research exposure and come back to us mm-hmm. yeah and a lot of times we advise students about the grades and stuff but that's more uh, case by case and students are welcome to come and talk to us uh, right. definitely and we give them the advice and so <coughs> you you look at all these things and and then you watch the students go through the program itself and 
Uh, I'm wondering, what do you think is the best sort of predictor of success in grad school based on the initial application? Or is it you can't really tell when you look at an application if they're going to graduate or not? I mean, most people graduate, but uh, yeah, I know. So that's very, that's very interesting. You put me on the spot here. So um, over the years, we've seen a lot of different kinds of students come in. It's not always that grades are a predictor for success of a program. Um, or if somebody's had a research exposure, that's going to predict success. It's it's everything put together. So if you're asking me what are the qualities, it's hard yeah. for me to say qualities, but I would say it's the attitude of that students have that is going to lead them to being successful or not. They come in with the right kind of attitude. You're here to learn. You're here to get the best. You want to utilize the system appropriately. So if students coming in for a master's and they are systematic, they're able to get their committee meetings going, they're able to um, uh, discuss with their supervisors, what's my project going to be, be on top of things and come to us if you need help. If you feel that your program is not going well, despite everything, then come to us. There's something more to it. If you have a structured project, if you have regular committee meetings, and um, if you're able to demonstrate that there is a piece of work that you can put together <clears throat> for moving it forward to a publication, there's no reason why things shouldn't go well. Students do get a lot of distraction when they're, when they're starting a master's program, right? They, they get involved. Distractions are different. Getting involved is different. You being involved in extracurricular activities is fantastic because you need a good balance between work and play. You cannot be sitting in the lab 24 hours and expect that that's what's going to be making you successful. I think it's a good balance that students need to have. They need to interact with their peers. They need to know what's happening in the outside. Well, how are other students doing? What's happening? Do I need to be taking relevant courses? Everything put together is going to be making a student more successful. So if you're asking me, what are the qualities? I can't really pinpoint yeah. and say. I think it depends on the individual. Yeah, and their As, ability to sort of take ownership of their degree. Take ownership, take responsibility, be on top of this. Students need different lengths of time for them to be uh, confident of doing things. Say, for example, if you're doing a course, you might need two hours to go through this for the exam. Other students require a long, longer period of time. There's no set protocol for this. But at the same time, I think if you're putting in hard work, if you're going to be a, a, a team player in your research environment, work with the supervisors, or if there are problems, come to us and, and talk to us, or talk to your supervisor first. More importantly, you know, you should be thinking that these students, for the success of the program, you're not going to be able to do this by yourself. You have your committee. You have a set of mentors there. Utilize the mentors. Your supervisor and your committee members are the mentors. Go to them. Approach them. Talk to them. I think it's very important to approach people and open up and talk to them, which will help you to sort of sort half of the problems, and uh, if there are any. Mm -hmm. But enjoy your program. I think it's more important. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and if you have the true passion, like I told you at the very beginning, everybody's going to be successful. Yeah, it'll come together. It'll absolutely come awesome. together. And I, okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to transition over to talk about the summer undergraduate research program that you are director of. This is, how many years have you been running the program? 
I think it's my seventh, sixth year, seventh year now. And how long has the program itself been running? The program, SERP completed 40 years as of last year. Oh my goodness. Yes. Last year was year 40. I've been running the program for six years. This is my year seven, I believe. And I was associate director for a year in the summer program. Mm -hmm. It didn't start out as large as it is now. Wow, yeah. Maybe we had a few students. Right. We have close to 100 students in the program now. And this is between domestic and international. Wow. And so what was the motivation, I guess, 40 years ago now behind the program? Like the motivation is to get undergraduate students the experience that they need and maybe provide them with a bit of funding to do that um, Mm because it's not always easy to get paid positions. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the initial intent, I believe, was that uh, students should get a taste of research, know what research is about. But then it expanded on from just being volunteering for in, in research laboratories because you can't volunteer in labs anymore. At our hospitals, you, can't, you can volunteer, but it takes a lot of effort to put in a volunteer application. Mm-hmm. And if you still have paid, to get all the immunization forms. Everything. And, but yeah. if you're in a paid position, if you're in a summer undergraduate position, you get all the privileges. You get to present at the research day. You get to be part of the program and, and so on and so forth. The, the program, when it was started 40 years back, there were few people probably interested in research. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I saw was there's a trend for more and more interest being shown in, in research. Like even if there are students who are going into the MD program, they want to get a flavor of research, right? They come back to us. Residents come back to us. They want to do a master's or a PhD. It started off like that. And now it's gone on to this huge program wherein all of the 100 students have to be funded in a program. And the funding is not just provided by the supervisors. The funding is provided. It it also gives the students a kind of like, you know, feels good, like I'm in an undergraduate program and getting money. And and the confidence is boosted for them. But they also feel a sense of the ownership that this is my project and I'm going to be taking ownership on this project. So if you're having 100 students in the program, at least 50% of the students come fully funded by the supervisor. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a small a number of students, not for, I would say a small number of students uh, who apply for funding. They apply to NSERC, they apply to other private funders to get funding for the summer program. I recently heard Starbucks is having this funding <laughs> for molecular genetics. And I don't know what Starbucks and molecular genetics have to do, but they are having funding for doing molecular genetics work. Yeah. So people explore, students explore things and try to get some funding. That's percentage is small. Yeah. The remaining 50% are funded by us, which means IMS. So I actually go and talk to departments. I I wouldn't say the fundraising is the right word. I contact departments to see if they can support me for the program. So there are a lot of support, lots of departments, hospitals, which support our program. But don't forget that each hospital has got its own summer program. Sunnybrook has got its own summer program, but it's not as large as ours, right? Like we have close to 100. Now, we are trying as much as possible to see how many students can we really fund? So I'm approaching departments this year. And that, that's, again, a huge uh, role for me. Uh, but what is the first and foremost thing that I'm looking at in students? I want to make sure that students, if they are looking at a graduate program, get that exposure 
getting a taste of mm-hmm. research is very important. And if we don't give the opportunity, when are they going to have the opportunity? Mm-hmm. Um, students always think, oh, I've been, ex- I've been doing lab work. Um, like In the, their the courses. courses <laughs> yeah. They're all programmed to work perfectly. Yeah. But you never get what it is to actually do the research and things don't go work well. Right, right. Things, the questions you an- ask for is not answered. So I think... Um, I want students to be able to get that exposure. And that's the main takeaway from the program. Absolutely. And yeah. and that's one thing. The second thing is that when I talked about sense of ownership for them, I remember they're going through the 12 weeks of the program. They not just get exposure to what they're doing in their individual laboratories, but I organize weekly seminars for them. So we have a wide variety of speakers every year who come and talk to the students about different aspects. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean that this is research the students are doing, but it's the research that is being done in that particular cohort. The third one is that I also organize a co-chair, an undergraduate career day with Dr. Avram Gottlieb. Mm. So that is another thing that the students get. Uh, it's, it's free. It's, uh, the registration is free for them. Apart from all this, they are able to put together an abstract. They present their work at the research day, which is fantastic. You just come and see the enthusiasm. These students are they literally go so crazy when they are yeah. there. They feel excited. They have a poster presentation. They have um, an oral presentation they do. And we, we've, we've created this awards where you can't have one award for 100 students. So every group of 10 students or 11 students have one first place and one honorable mention. Mm-hmm. So it gives them a sense of like, I'm definitely going to win. It's only one out of 10 I yeah. can make it. <laughs> and... Um, some of the students get to present to oral presentation, gives them, and, and the keynote speaker is there. And keynote speaker is one very well-known faculty mm-hmm. from our own department. And, and they get to see this person who has come up to such a level who can talk about, I was a summer student at one time, a couple of years back. Mm-hmm. I had uh, Dr. Shaf Keshuti come and uh, be the keynote speaker. And he said, I was a summer student in this program many, many, many years back. For students to see this kind of it's very inspirational for them, and, and they see what work is going on and what's going on in IMS, and they are so excited. And a lot of students have already applied to our program. Wow, yeah, right, because the application is due it's, around this time, Exactly, right? so. so they've already applied to our program, and, and it's, I, I get to know my students mm-hmm. a lot. I, I see them at the weekly seminars. I'm there every week to wow. talk to them, <laughs> and I, I'm there to introduce a speaker and so on and so forth, and I get to know this, these students. And they come to me, oh, you're a graduate coordinator, so can I ask you this? So they come to you. And it's a a kind of, um, you know, exposure for IMS Mm -hmm. that this is what it is. The summer program is sort of like a feeder, Mm -hmm. and they come to us. And a lot of students have been accepted, and they're finishing up the summer all excited that they're going to be graduate students with us. And as far as I understand, it's pretty reflective of the type of students you accept into grad school, like international students can apply to the undergraduate research program as well. Absolutely. We have a chunk of students who are uh, international students, and Mm -hmm. we have students from all over the Mm -hmm. world. The thing is that, and it's again, they're Canadians probably who have gone and they're studying in Brazil. They come mm-hmm. back to us. So or their education is Their education is, some of the students are or educated abroad. Yes. They could be students from, we've had lots of students from Brazil. We've lots of students from England. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had students from China, uh, India, a lot. And it's important for them to know what it is that we are doing mm-hmm. in Canada and in Toronto, and mm-hmm. particularly in IMS, because that sort of gives them 
an incentive to apply to our program. Mm -hmm. um, we have streamlined this a lot. We want to make sure students are here in the program for 12 weeks. We give them a certificate of completion. So if you want to be in doing all of getting this, you want to make sure you come to the weekly seminars, you're there for the full 12 weeks, you're able to send in an abstract, you're present at the research day. Mm -hmm. So we need them to have the complete 12 weeks exposure before you can really be um, provided a certificate of completion. We don't, it's not given, they earn it. Mm -hmm. And you've even given them the month of May off if they're an undergrad student who's... Uh, we don't, we start our program in yeah. June. Yeah. So um, our application deadline is I guess today or tomorrow yeah. for the undergraduate student. When, when the motivation behind this is that when students come into the summer program, they they sort of get this connection with the supervisor. They will, and the supervisor too gets a feel of who these students are, right? You need to have the good match. Sometimes they don't get along. It's not the right fit for mm -hmm. them. It's not the right lab. Some students require smaller laboratories. Some students require a very nice big environment to thrive. So you find the supervisor student match there. And if students are doing well there, then what happens is they transition and go on and say, oh, I've done a summer. Could you take me on as a fourth year project student? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then step on, and my own students did that. They do a summer, they come on as a fourth year, do another summer and transition beautifully mm -hmm. because they've got settled in the laboratory, they know how it works, they, they've got a lot of the initial rough edges sorted out. They know and where you, everything is in the lab. And, they, they, yeah. they've, they've already got their feet wet, so mm -hmm. it's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. And once their feet are wet, fantastic. They can just go on, get their project, get rolling. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, I think that's the perfect place to end off. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Venta Kishwaran. Venta Kishwaran. Venkateshwaran. Venkateshwaran. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's okay. So thank you, and back to the podcast. Pleasure. Okay, guys, we're back with more Raw Talk, and we're continuing our discussion about... Well, what is this, this discussion about? <laughs> the, we're continuing our Cat Chats, part two. We're continuing Cat Chats, part two. Wait. All right, let's get back into it. So who... I, I think, Erin, you had a question? Yep. Okay, let's see. So what is an average day as a grad student for you like? Hmm. I like that question. I feel like we're all going to have very different answers. Yeah, yes. very different <laughs> um, I'm not even sure if I'm the best person to ask because uh, my days are a little bit scattered. Right now I'm still sort of in the beginning stages of my project and I haven't gotten RAB approval yet so I haven't started my actual project. But um, So a lot of my day-to-day -day life is a lot of reading, a lot of writing currently. Um, but once I get my project started, I'll do some recruiting in the clinics and then run my project. So, yeah, I'm a little bit scattered right now, but do you guys have a little bit more structure to your day? Well, actually, I just had a little follow-up question on what, you, mm -hmm. on what you just said. So when you will be recruiting, um, what will you be doing with your participants? Will they be filling out surveys or what exactly will that look like? Yeah, so I guess my project is a little bit different. I am actually in the process of developing a psychoeducation intervention. So it's similar to sort of an information session or patient education. So I'm sort of in the stage of developing it. So once I recruit my patients, they'll come and attend the sessions. Um, and I won't be delivering it. It'll be delivered by um, allied health professionals. But um, I'll be doing sort of the um, consent process and the, um, the questionnaires and follow-up follow interviews with them. Um, so it'll be a little bit of that. Alex, what does your day look like regularly? So um, I, similar to Erin, also work in a dried clinical lab, but it's, um, it's a little bit different. I do neuroimaging with kids, that's the kids. 
So I've been involved a little bit with recruitment and um, scanning of participants, which is both very fun, um, but can also be a bit challenging at times. That's actually only been a, a small part of my my master's because there's actually someone who has been hired to do this. It's part my project is part of a bigger uh, provincial study. So I also do a lot of reading, and then I do a lot of raw. Um, raw. <laughs> a lot of raw talk. <laughs> a lot of raw neuroimaging data um, processing and then analysis. So I spend a lot of time behind my computer working on MATLAB, using different types of scripts to process my data, then analyze it, um, and then I use a lot of stats. So it's a lot of sitting down. <laughs> so I definitely try and break it up with going to the gym. I use Hard House a lot or you know, coffee breaks, going to some of the IMS events. Is it a kind of a nine-to-five routine? Uh, a bit longer, I would say. <laughs> yeah, maybe closer to uh, yeah nine to nine. But um, I do enjoy it. It's good, and it's very important to get involved with other things like this like podcast. This. Like Definitely, this podcast is a very good example. I think our mentioned. university, yeah, I don't think our university leaves us any shortage of things to do outside mm-hmm. the lab. No, absolutely. There's only two. There's almost too many things to do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you mentioned Hard House, which is a student center that has a really cool gym on mm-hmm. campus. I like to tell people that I've made Hard House a hard home. Oh. There almost every day. It's it's pretty cool. It's like working out in a castle. It has a bit of that Harry Potter vibe to it. That's right. Yeah. Um, so my day is also very different. So my lab, I think, is a little bit different from other labs. We do epigenetics, and so it's a very wet lab type of space. But because we're a fairly big group, we usually take on a lot of different projects at once. And I think the advantage for from a student standpoint of that is you get to be involved in a lot of different projects and sort of learn about your field from different perspectives, right? And you do you use different techniques, so cell models, animal models, molecular genetics techniques, chromatin IP, things like that, a lot of wet lab stuff. Uh, the disadvantage being that you're never kind of, you're only captain or like lead of one project, right? So for the most part, you're sort of only contributing a small portion to different projects. So I actually don't do a lot of my own analysis. So we have a bioinformatics team that, that does a lot of the computational stuff. So I sometimes feel jealous when I hear you guys talking about, oh, I did my own analysis and I generated <laughs> this. And start to finish, like, this is all me. I, I, I don't really get that kind of an experience. But um, a, a lot like your days, because I do work on a lot of different projects, um, I tell people that grad school is a lot like one giant to-do list. And as you check things off the to-do list, more things kind of appear at the bottom. And you're constantly having to rearrange your schedule by priority and what do I have to do next and how urgent is it? And what I'm doing really depends on where I am in a certain stage of a project. So if I'm at the very beginning, then that type of phase might be more conducive to team meetings. So meeting with different students and postdocs that I'm working with in the lab and brainstorming ideas of, okay, what what do we think mechanistically is happening? What is already kind of known based on papers that are out there? Does anyone have any ideas as to how we could generate these, these research questions and then how we could answer them through experiments? And then once that phase is done, we kind of move into, okay, who's doing which portion of what experiment? And then how do we, how do we get this done? So maybe there's a new technique that we want to leverage in order to make this happen. So we might order a kit. Okay, well, you ordered a kit. It's very naive to think that it, your whatever experiment that you want to do is going to work on the first try. If you guys have ever used kits of any biotech company, um, not naming any names, <laughs> they always advertise, oh, easy prep, you can do this in less than two hours, and now you can do it in less than one hour, right? It never works exactly as advertised, as planned. There's always a lot of troubleshooting to do on the wet lab side. So 
usually our approach is, oh, just try this with a couple test samples that you don't really need that you can kind of throw away if they don't work out and then see where it goes. So that's kind of the wet lab. So that might be like a wet lab phase, which is usually kind of the, the those are the longest days because you're just kind of in the lab for, you know, seven to 12 hours, depending on the day. And then also if you're doing multi-day experiments, that means work on the weekend. But uh, like you, Alex, I try to break it up with the gym and just other things outside the lab, get some fresh air. And then suppose we have done, uh, we've had a really long phase of just a lot of wet lab days, and now we've generated some data, we've sent it off for analysis, and now we've gotten some data. We then try to figure out how to make sense of that. Do we need to do any more experiments? And if we do, we will go ahead and do them. Um, if we don't, we then kind of start building a mind map of, okay, the story, the puzzle pieces are kind of coming together. This is what we do. So in this phase, you kind of go back to the drawing board and you say, okay, well, what's missing? There's a lot more meetings. And then hopefully if all of that works out, you move into the writing phase where you're sort of at your computer, either at home or uh, in the office, and you're just trying to kind of write different parts of the paper and you're sending it back and forth uh, from one author to another and just kind of compare and contrasting ideas. So it really is kind of a, a, a grab bag of things. And I feel like there is no average day f in academia in general. I mean, if, I think if you talk to a lot of students, they'll tell you that, but also if you talk to a lot of supervisors, They'll kind of say, oh, today I'm working on a grant, today I'm, maybe I'm in the lab, today I'm managing students, today I'm teaching, things like that. So I think that's a cool thing about academia is that uh, there's no set day. So that's totally true. It's good. It keeps things fresh and keeps you on your toes, you know? Definitely. Yeah, so I, I think that kind of wraps things up. I think that kind of does it for our first Undergrads Ask installment. We hope that this was really helpful to you guys. As always, we, the, the Raw Talk team, are available reachable by email if you guys want to learn more or maybe if you want to reach us directly and you have any questions whether you're an undergrad or you're a new grad student where I was available you can find us via our website www.rawtalkpodcast.com and yeah we'd also like to wrap up by saying that we're super happy to have received all your comments thus far and please keep them coming they, they kind of fuel the show this is a discussion driven program and the more feedback we get from listeners the the more we can work on improving it and in the meantime, you can support the show by doing the following. So you can uh, subscribe and rate us and leave us a comment on iTunes and Google Play Music and now Stitcher. And uh, you can also go on our website. And if you're doing any shopping on Amazon, you can use our Amazon click-through page, which you can find on our website. That, that helps us support and, and fund parts of the show. And uh, you can also send us a message or follow us on social media. So we're on Facebook. Raw Talk Podcast. You're, we're also on Twitter and Instagram at Raw Talk Podcast. And also tell your friends. Uh, I feel like we, we've been at this for a couple months and we're still kind of learning how to deliver uh, a better program, a better listening experience for you guys. And if you feel like you know someone who'd be interested in this or someone who'd benefit from hearing discussions like these with other grad students or faculty members as we've done thus far, please let them know. And yeah, all the, all the support we get, we're, we're really super, super happy about. So thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Alex, for joining us. This was awesome. And until next time, this is Richie on behalf of the rest of the Raw Talk team telling you to keep it raw. Raw Talk is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Facebook and Instagram at Raw Talk Podcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. And we're continuing our discussion about... Well, what is this, this discussion about? <laughs> we're continuing our cat chats.